before you say that the privatisation has not yielded the result we wanted, you need to look into it and see what actually prevented that from happening, because most of what prevents it from happening are the, are the distortions in, in the privatisation process that you could have dealt with. My name is Reem Ibrahim and I'm the Communications Officer and Linda Wetson Scholar here at the Institute of Economic Affairs. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Shankar Singham today for this week's video. He is the author of Market Distortions in Privatisation Processes and is also one of the world's leading international trade and competition lawyers and economists. He is the CEO of Competere and a former cleared advisor to the United States Trade Representative. He's also a former advisor to the Secretary of State for International Trade of the UK. He's also an IA Fellow, alongside being the former Director of International Trade and the Competition Unit here at the IEA. Shankar, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Amazing. So, in your book, you mm -hmm. sort of highlight you know, many of the issues that often arise within that privatisation process. Mm -hmm. Could you first of all start by just sort of defining what you mean by privatisation. Mm. It's often um, sort of conflated with um, sort of outsourcing or even procurement services. So mm. could you just mm. explain what you actually mean by privatisation? Yeah, so, so really in the 1980s, in the modern sort of more modern period of privatisation, we saw a lot of um, historically nationalised companies. Uh, the UK was a big uh, leader in this movement, but it wasn't the only one by any means. Uh, in fact, the electricity privatisation the first electricity privatisation was in Chile. Um, and what governments were recognising is that these large state-owned companies delivering services were not very effective. You know, they were, they were expensive, they were costly, they weren't providing a very good service. And the thought was in uh, many countries around the world that actually we needed to privatise some of these things. Now, in the US, you had the airline deregulation in the 1970s under Jimmy Carter. So, so there was a wave of, of reaction that led to a sort of privatisation in the late 70s, early 80s. And the big set of privatisations was the UK, without doubt. Uh, electricity, gas, water, everything. Um, and um, I think we'll talk a little bit about the track record of of, of this but by and large it, it 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 released into the economy significant um uh, economic uh, activity amazing and i guess all the purpose of that kind of privatization and those kind of processes is ultimately to foster um, those market mechanisms, competition mm. and choice, and then ultimately provide competition um, and, and that choice for consumers, and then obviously give consumers that kind of better welfare. So what kind of um, environment is actually required to then create that kind of positive competition that we want to yeah. see? Well, I mean, uh, it's interesting that you framed it that way, because um, that's certainly our view of um, why privatisation, you know, is there. But at the time, in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, there was, there, there, there was a competing school of thought, which was essentially governments were essentially broke. And a lot of the privatizations were to basically sell off um, these companies and generate some revenue into treasuries. And um, 
I've always argued, you know, argued in the book that, that that should not be the purpose of, of, of the privatisation. But it would be wrong to say that the UK privatisation solely had competition as the, as the organising principle. Um, there was an effort, there were other political considerations. So, so for example, with the electricity privatisation, one of the big considerations was to remove the power of the coal mining unions. Um, in the UK. So there were other competing political forces. But once you've decided that you're going to privatise, there is really only one way to do it properly, and that is to liberate the forces of competition and to lower the level of market distortion. That's really interesting. And I think it's so within the book, you, you look at those particularly different case studies. Um, let's start with electricity and gas. Mm. So when was electricity and gas privatised in the UK and what kind of, uh, what were the purposes of it? But then also did that, what kind of regulatory environment was then required to make it, make it work? Yes, well, I mean, those, those who were around in the, in the 80s, uh, like me, will remember, <laughs> <Not quite> me. <laughs> will, will, will remember the coal miners' strikes and, the, uh, uh, and, and all of that. And there was a big push from the Thatcher government to, um, they felt that they were essentially being hamstrung by the power of the, of the unions. And so there was a big push to do something about it. And um, as I say, the Chilean electricity privatisation occurred in the early 80s. Um, and so it wasn't like there were there was no there were no examples uh, around the world, um, but in, in the mid 80s we 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 did the privatisation and the process for doing it was and I was involved in 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 acting for one of the one of the companies when I was a a, a lawyer at the time. Um, um, the process was to create a um, generators so you had electricity generators and then you had a single transmission and distribution company essentially a bottleneck monopoly uh, into a series of regional electricity companies and the problem is this structure was not very conducive to actually generating competitive forces because regional electricity companies don't tend to compete with each other um, and also you have a bottleneck um, and we see that a similar approach in other areas. So in rail, we see a, uh, a the government still owns a network rail, still owns the, 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 the tracks. tracks. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so if you're going to create a system like that, and competition is your, is your yardstick, what you have to do is make sure there's a lot of competition in those three different levels, wherever you can put it. So, so in the electricity case, it has to be at the generation level because electricity, unlike gas, electricity, you know, can't be stored, obviously, uh, or at least battery storage. Certainly in the 1980s was not remotely close to w w what it is even now. And even now it's not enough. Um, so it can't be stored, fails to fails to safety. Gas can be stored, fails to danger. So they're very different kinds of things. So increasing generation capacity is the name of the game. And one of the problems in the UK is we essentially had two generators. We had uh, national power and um, I can't remember the name off the top of my head of the other generator, but there were two generators. There wasn't enough competition at the generation level. What little competition there was was completely um, denuded by the, the, the transmission and, and distribution um, monopoly. And so the benefits of uh, low, what should have happened, which was the benefits to consumers of lower electricity prices, wasn't fully realised. Was it better than the previous system? Absolutely. Certainly better than the previous system. Um, in gas, on the other hand, you have different um, factors. So in gas, you have big pipelines, and the issue is interconnection. If I'm trying to interconnect a gas pipeline into a, into a bigger you know, pipeline, what are the rules? Uh, how do I ensure that the owner of the um, the incumbent owner of the of the main supply 
is uh, required to you know, or does not charge a super competitive profit, you know, uh, to the the person who's trying to interconnect, and that's where all the issues sort of come uh, in the gas in the gas sector. And I guess as a result, within the electricity sector, it resulted in that duopoly, and then obviously that means that there isn't that kind of competition. Um, but over in the US. They started with multiple providers when they were going through that privatization process. Yeah, so you have more generation companies, you have more generation capacity, um, and therefore you have uh, more competition going into um, into the process. So it was more effective. But right now, sort of looking now at, at what you do in in this case is, we're not going to develop more generation. We're not going to develop more competition in the electricity sector unless we actually also generate more electricity. You know, we we actually have to so generate more power. Supply issue as well as it's a, a right. regulatory environment issue. Yeah, and and there are other things that we have done after the privatisation in the course of the last twenty, thirty years, or forty years, really, um, in terms of environmental levies and taxes and and other things that also have an impact on the ability of the privatisation to yield competition. And I think it's, it's interesting when you talk about this sort of bottleneck uh, factor as a, as a result of that. A lot of people will argue then that it's a natural monopoly, that electricity and yeah, gas are natural sure. monopolies. Um, what do what do you say to yeah. that argument? So, I mean, the natural monopoly argument is 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 a you know it's well it's a well used uh, argument. I think you have to be very um, clear about whether you're talking about something that actually is uh, you know a, a, a true natural monopoly. In other words. You've got to be very careful when you say that only the government can provide that service. Um, and there are bits of the electricity sector um, that lend themselves to more natural monopoly characteristics. That's why we had a single transmitter and distributor. That's why in rail you have uh, network rail. Um, the, the challenge here is always how do I make this system work with competition but also provide the necessary incentives for investment? So if you have you know, cannibalistic competition, where you simply have lots of lots of small players all, all um, competing with each other without a, a grid, for example, which you could have. You could have um, private networks all over the place. The problem is you're losing the economies of scale, and so you're not going to get the investors that, that, that come. So it's a, it's a delicate balancing act. And you also have to think about there are certain elements of the service that won't be delivered in a purely competitive uh, landscape, so so-called universal service. So um, we see this in post, for example, yeah. and we did quite a lot of work on the Japanese postal privatization, um, where delivering that letter to that rural customer somewhere, you know, in the middle of nowhere, is not something that lends itself to ordinary competitive private sector processes. And what you have to do in that case is, yeah, you can have a universal service function, and you can, and the government can provide money to support the universal service function but you've uh, also got to apply a competition lens to that and you've got to say is that the the least anti-competitive thing you can do consistent with the universal service goal so how big is the universal service fund can it be you we see this in telecom as well can it be used by the companies that are in competition um, to anti-competitively cross-subsidize so if you give one party a universal service obligation like British Telecom, for example, mm. can British Telecom then use that obligation to anti-competitively cross-subsidise into its competitive business where it's competing with other mm. providers, undercut them, 
and uh, and they exit the market. The problem is that they will exit the market, and ultimately the price will go up. So, and I think I think it's interesting you sort of describe this uh, this kind of process of privatisation, where effectively they become um, a you know it was a public monopoly becomes a private monopoly without that kind of mm. regulation, and and of course that means that other providers are effectively unable to enter the market, and so. Those benefits of privatisation that we, you know, initially spoke about the, this this idea that competition then yields choice right. for consumers and ultimately uh, better welfare for consumers. Those consequences aren't aren't, aren't then fully realised. So, just sticking with electricity and gas for a moment. I mean, how how do you then design a regulatory environment that fosters those kind of mm. those kind of positive consequences? Well, so, and this is a general question about regulation, you know, in general. Mm. And I think what we should do with reg with regulatory promulgation across the board, including when you design privatisation processes, is to think about what is the effect on competition. Mm. And increasingly, with some privatisations and some industries where you do have significant um, trade and investment from other countries, what is the effect on trade? And in, in, even in things like electricity, we obviously have a lot of investment from overseas in the electricity sector in the UK. Uh, so even things like electricity, you need to think about what is the effect on trade of, um, of, of the particular regulatory plan you're putting together. And also, what is the effect on competition? If I do a particular thing, what is the impact on market competition? Um, and when we use the word competition generally, and we've done this both in this book and in uh, the other book that I wrote on trade, competition and regulation, we we have a very specific vision of what competition actually means. So it doesn't mean simply lots of competitors. It essentially means the, in economic terms, it means the maximization of productive and allocative efficiency. So, so essentially, it's um, allocative efficiency is about the, the static now, mm -hmm. um, and productive efficiency brings in these investment sort of ideas. So, so a large company with a large market share may not necessarily have um, market power or, or the market power it has may not be durable. So mm -hmm. you have to think about these kinds of things when you think about competition. So we have a very specific vision of what competition means in this context. And what we want to see in a privatization is the privatization actually liberating competition. So you have to think about does, is, is what I'm doing here going to create competitive forces. So you look at rail, for example, which is a good example of where it doesn't create any competitive forces, really. You have network rail, government owns the track. You have the um, regional companies. Uh, they don't compete with each other. If I'm going from, you know, Woking to Waterloo, you know, I'm not, if the, if the service goes down or the price goes up, I don't suddenly go off to Penzance. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I have to do that. So, but there are ways of getting uh, so-called on-rail competition where you can actually auction, just like in an airport. Uh, an airport will auction routes and you can have multiple people uh, serving the same route. Um, so I could have one company serving the 825 train from point A to point B and another one serving the 850 train. And that will at least generate some competition. It's interesting, the CMA actually looked at rail um, and made lots of recommendations, none of which have been adopted, um, which included, you know, this is how you get on rail competition. So that's an example of thinking through the, the design of the privatisation to generate competitive forces. Yeah, and I guess with the rail specifically as, as that example, when it was privatised, with the tracks still being owned by the government, it effectively means that the government then pick and choose who those providers are. So you've got a particular company that will serve London to Manchester. But it means, I mean, that's... 
not the type of competition that we're talking about here because that I mean those sort of companies will then compete for the government contract in order to serve that leg but that's not the same kind yeah. of competition that we're talking about in, in, so, in this book. So the competition you need is the different rail companies on rail competition they've got different point to point um, they've got different times of so routes for example. So it's consumers that have it's, to be able it's, to choose. It's consumers will then so if for example you know company A runs a service badly or makes it very expensive mm -hmm. and it's it's the 825 from you know point x to, to to somewhere in london somebody going to work commuter going to work where there's less choice um if somebody else has the 850 i might actually at some point i might actually change my uh, reorganize my day not by much i mean 20 minutes 25 minutes um to take advantage of a cheaper fare or a um better service and it's that kind of competition that actually you want to you want to encourage because that's what disciplines um, companies. Now there's certain things you can't really do too much about in in these kinds of network industries. You know, you, the, the the network generally has to be owned by one uh, one one player. That doesn't mean it has to be the government, but uh, but it but it should be. You know, you can't carve up the the, the rail and have people making different rails mm. and so on. So it's got to be an integrated system there, but. The interconnection into the rail, that is where you could get a competition problem. You could get an interconnection problem. And that, that's a big problem. That has historically been a big problem in the telecom space where interconnection is crucial. Uh, and typically the incumbents have been charging extremely high interconnection prices. And we saw that in the work that we did in Mexico um, with, with Telmex that we is one of the case studies here. Yeah, we wanted to turn to um, telecommunications because um, it, it's a sort of de dedicate an entire chapter to telecommunications and the way in which mm. this kind of privatisation processes have occurred. Um, I mean, I first of all want to ask you, I mean, how how did the privatisation of telecommunications um, sort of look in in the UK, but also in those other examples? And technological advancements mm. have had a huge impact in the way in which that competition has actually mm. been served. Previously, it was sort of, um, you know, the, the way that you delivered that kind of voice telephony, you only had one provider. Mm. Um, obviously, tech advancements have now meant that we could do that in multiple different ways. Mm -hmm. So how, how has that privatisation process looked like in the UK? Um, and, you know, how has, that, how has those advancements then actually fostered that kind of competition? Yeah. So, I, I mean, telecom happened a lot earlier than, mm. than, than any of the others and probably is the most successful. I mean, with, actually not without a doubt, is the most successful <laughs> privatisation. Um, and um, essentially what happened is, it, and we were very involved in the Mexican privatisation in the early 90s, where essentially what happened is the, um, typically what you'll have is you'll have a, you'll open up competition in long distance and in international markets and you'll keep a monopoly in the local. Um, that's that one country, Romania did the opposite, which was kind of strange, but, um, but that is typically what countries did to start with. And in Mexico, what happened is Telmex had the, the, the local monopoly uh, and did engage in massive anti-competitive cross-subsidization, abuse of its universal service commitment in anti-competitive ways to keep out the new entrants who were coming in from... Um, AT&T was the major new entrant, but, but MCI, if you remember old MCI, WorldCom was the other new entrant. Um, and they both were unable to function, basically, mm. in Mexico as a result. And there was a big trade implication of this because there was uh, the very first WTO basic telecoms 
services agreement case was the US versus Mexico on, on, on this issue. And uh, the WTO services telecoms, basic telecoms agreement did actually have a reference paper on competition safeguards. So actually looking at things like anti-competitive cross-organizations is one of the first areas in the WTO that was a competition area. And uh, the US won the case. Um, the Mexican Competition Agency became heavily involved in trying to curb Telmex's anti-competitive practices. Nobody had much success. Um, and as a result, I think AT&T and uh, MCI left the market, basically. Um, uh, so that's an example of how not to do it. Uh, there were lots of examples of slightly more successful telecom privatizations, um, uh, partly because of non-wireline services. So if you're running a railroad or you're running um, electricity across wire or gas in a, in a, in a pipeline, that you don't have much that you can really change in the infrastructure. Whereas in telecom, one of the big benefits is because of the reduction in cost of provision of the service, lots of other new innovations came on stream. So th this is why, you know, broadband, I mean, no one has a wireline phone anymore. Even your phone on the desk is not actually a wireline phone. Um, it's all voice over IP. At the, at the time that the basic telecom agreement was being put in place in the mid-90s, voice over IP was regarded as a value-added service. You know, mm. this was a new thing. So all of that came to the fore. All of it competed with with itself. Uh, and that led to massive technological innovation. And that's kind of a model for how we'd like to see a privatization function. You know, that's the kind of thing it would... So competitive forces liberates, lowers cost, and allows innovation to take place. And I think and that's probably one of the, the most important takeaways from the telecommunications privatisation. That actually, not only does that mean that, you know, that, that, that those individual companies end up becoming more efficient as a result of that kind of competitive behaviour, but also it then yields um, even more uh, sort of competition, which obviously reduces prices. But again, that kind of technological advancement, and uh, you, you, do, you wouldn't necessarily, could have maybe not seen that if it was still under public ownership yeah. uh, without those kind of um, uh, market forces. There's also the element of the fact that it means that you know t telecommunication is so accessible yeah. because of how how much that has reduced the prices uh, as a result of mm. that competition. And it, it paved the way, as we say, both in this book and the other book I've mentioned, um, it paved the way for convergence. It paved the yeah. way for, you know, the whole transformation of, of your society. I mean, the, the way people consume information now, and ultimately telecoms is just a way of delivering a certain type of information, but it's all just about information delivery systems. And the way we consume information now has radically changed. And it's quite interesting. If you look, and we refer to this in the, in the book, the um, AT&T case, which, you know, the breakup of the, um, of the AT&T company in the US, which was basically a, 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 a case um, that was filed in federal court, and you had a judge, uh, Judge Green, uh, issuing what was called a modified final judgment of in the AT&T case, which, which created the Baby Bell system. But because it was a legal, uh, it was a court case, essentially, it meant that the the Baby Bell companies essentially had to apply to Judge Green for new businesses. So at one point it was taking about four years to, oh, to actually... And what this did is it held up the take-up of cellular in, in the US. And actually, 
the, the Europeans came to certain types of cellular service, particularly things like um, um, uh, message delivery service. So, so um, you know, your, your messaging function. Europeans took to it much more readily. Americans didn't because it took a long time to get the cellular, uh, you know, process out of the sort of Modified final because judgment you had case. To get permission to do so. Because you had to go to a to a not even a regulator. You had to go to a judge to to get to get permission. So I mean, that, I mean that's that's a crazy sort yeah. of an example of that kind of regulation just clearly being anti-competitive and not working. Um, just sort of um, in just sort of looking at regulation that regulation like regulatory environment in general. Um, obviously we've spoken about those specific case studies, and I think that the U.S. example is particularly interesting with regard to telecoms. Um, Looking to the future and looking to the way in which we conduct those kind of privatisation processes, mm-hmm. what would you know your recommendation be to these kind of policymakers that are looking at this and actually say you know looking at that kind mm. of regulatory environment? Well, obviously, there's a live conversation here mm-hmm. um, about this, and and I think the thing I would say is. It, and that's why we talk. That's why the book is called Market Distortions in Privatization Processes. Before you throw the baby out with the bathwater, before you say that the privatization has not yielded the result we wanted, you need to look into it and see what actually prevented that from happening. Because most of what prevents it from happening are the are the distortions in in the privatization process that you could have dealt with. You know, you could have you could have changed the model, and you could still gain the benefits. But what I fear people will do is say it didn't deliver, therefore we need to go back to nationalisation, which is a completely, um, you know, th- this would be a disaster. I mean, this would put put us back to the pre-1970s kind of period when uh, all of these gains, you know, could go into reverse. So I think it's, it's really important to be honest and open about the privatisations themselves and get away from a sort of privatisation is good, nationalisation is bad, but, but, <laughs> look, but at look at what works and how they can be improved. So I'm not, uh, the rail is a good example because um, the CMA made very specific recommendations about competition in rail, uh, none of which were taken up. Um, and instead we have the Williams Review on rail, which essentially suggests that we should have a national rail company, but we're going to give private contracts for service to various private companies, which, you know, to come back to your first point, that's more like outsourcing. I mean, that, yeah. that, that's not, that is not creating any kind of competitive um, pressure, except in the very, very marginal case. Shankar, thank you so, so much for joining me today. And uh, I think that anybody that has read the book or will read the book will uh, will take away those kind of ideas. And I think it's interesting specifically for, uh, for the future and the way that privatisation processes look. So thank you very thank much. Thank you.